Welcome to the Women in Government podcast, a way for people to come together and discuss important issues and policies of the day. To get the conversation started, here's Maryland Delegate Cherie Sample-Hughes. Hi, I'm Maryland Delegate Cherie Sample-Hughes. And did you know workers with higher levels of education and skills often have greater earning potential when compared to those with lower levels? According to the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Projections in 2013, workers with an associate's degree earned about 19% more than high school graduates who do not attend college and 65% more than workers with less than a high school diploma. What does this mean for those with a disability? The 2016 Annual Disability Statistics Compendium finds those with disabilities represent just over 12% of the population. That's what we're going to discuss today, career planning and credentialing for people with disabilities. I'm happy to welcome the following guests to the Women in Government podcast, Oregon State Senator Sarah Gelser. Her legislative efforts have focused on serving vulnerable and low-income populations. This topic is also near and dear to her heart. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you, Senator, with us today. Our second guest, Dr. Joe Ashley, Assistant Commissioner for Grants and Special Programs of the Virginia Department of Aging and Rehabilitative Services and Director for Virginia's Rehabilitation Services Administration Funded Career Pathways for Individuals with Disabilities Project. Thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Additionally, we have Judy Mortrude, Senior Poly Analyst, Center for Post-Secondary and Economic Success at the Center for Law and Social Policy. Hello, everyone. And finally, we are happy to have Dr. Scott Solberg, Professor of Counseling, Psychology, and Applied Human Development from the University of Boston. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you i also like to thank all the listeners who are taking the time to hear this important discussion about career planning and credentialing for people with disabilities. To get started, Dr. Ashley, I think it's important to know the history of preparing those with disabilities for post-secondary success. So where have we been? More importantly, where are we heading? I would say I've been working in this field of helping prepare people with disabilities to go into post-secondary opportunities for quite a few years, and I've seen it change over time. In the beginning, it was these processes. We didn't have very many people in the school systems that were thinking beyond the classes that an individual needed to take. They weren't taking a long view towards a post-secondary education or looking at careers or industry sectors. So what was happening was you were trying your best to get people into what was now called career and technical education without various plans to do so or coordinating plans across various programs such as vocational rehabilitation, special education, and career and technical education. So what was happening was people were going into areas that were what somebody else thought might be a good idea. We weren't doing a lot of career assessments are looking at these opportunities and options that met up with people's skills and abilities. So what we see now in the focus is how do we organize the various services that are available that could support an individual in their choice to go towards a post-secondary career 
are looking at an industry sector or cluster and then organizing an individual's educational opportunities around career and technical education and then the support. A part of that is finding out how to get people into these career and technical education opportunities, bringing in assistive technology to support that type of an effort. That gets to be critical to help people understand the opportunities of moving forward. On our Career Pathways for Individuals with Disabilities Project here in Virginia, we literally have an assistive technology specialist that's full-time on the grant, and we're trying to demonstrate that with various types of technologies, people can access these post-secondary options. And also looking at the various supports that somebody might need to be successful so that we can open doors to get to those types of services. As a part of this process and where we're going from what I'm seeing is looking at how one can get to credentials, industry-recognized credentials in particular, and that becomes important to think about because credentials are basically taking the education opportunity and then some hands-on components, and then somebody has identified that if you have this skill set or a particular skill set that can be measured, then you can obtain a credential. Making sure that people are prepared to be able to take those tests becomes the strategies that we need to be thinking about as we move forward in getting people prepared for post-secondary opportunities. I would also say looking at articulation agreements is going to be critical in helping people with disabilities access these post-secondary options so that if they're in the high school setting, then there may be a way to articulate towards an associate's degree, or if people get into associate's degrees, they can go on to the four-year college degrees. But one of the issues we've got is that oftentimes people with disabilities don't identify themselves as they move up out of high school into other options, even if they had an IEP in place or an individualized education plan in place. So you've got to figure out how to find those supports and help them understand that supports are available and can help them attain these different kinds of credentials. You made an excellent point when you said that persons really not having the understanding as to what services are available to them as they transition out of high school. And I teach part-time at a local community college, and that is one point that I'm constantly making to our students to make them aware, just as you said, the services that are available. So thank you for bringing that up and also speaking to the point of what's going on in Virginia. So I guess my next question is, what is the federal role in career planning and credentialing? Because certainly the federal part is very important. Judy, do you have any thoughts on that one? Yes, career planning and credentialing is part of several major pieces of federal education and workforce development legislation. When you're talking about younger students, students in elementary, the K-12, secondary students, the Every Student Succeeds Act, or ESSA, is the piece of federal legislation that recently replaced No Child Left Behind. And ESSA, at its core, asks states to create plans for student success and to have challenging state academic standards for all students with alternate academic standards only for students with the most significant cognitive disabilities. ESSA asks states to create standards for career readiness and really asks states to consider how to measure which credentials have value for their students. Beyond ESSA, there is, as Dr. Ashley mentioned, the Career Technical Education, the Perkins Act, the Carl D. Perkins Act for Career and Technical Education, which stands up secondary and post-secondary programs of study inside career clusters, asks for technical skill attainment to be measured, and a number of other performance measures around those Perkins funds. And then the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, 
we all call it WIOA. WIOA, it has workforce development services targeted particularly for individuals with barriers to employment. It also asks for industry sector partnerships for tables to be convened where industry employers come and talk with education partners to design these services, and it asks for these career pathway models, these career pathway programs to be stood up. So those are some of the big key federal levers that really help us get to those credentials of value. But nationally recognized credentials really fall into two buckets. They're academic credentials, the ones we're all familiar with, the high school diploma, the AA, the BA, and beyond, the bachelor's and beyond. There are industry-recognized credentials, credentials that come out of sort of industry sector associations. And there's a new space in credentialing, people experimenting with badges or micro-credentialing, ways to document competencies that individuals have that make them more marketable. Thank you for explaining those acronyms. We try to learn as many as we can, but we're never just quite (laughs) sure, so I appreciate you expounding upon that. There's no end. (laughs) Senator, anything you'd like to add? I would say that one of the, the pieces in terms of the federal role is ensuring that students have access to post-secondary education where they can work on career planning and credentialing by removing significant barriers to post-secondary financial aid. Many students with disabilities may graduate from high school with some sort of a modified diploma. And right now, in most states, the federal government will not allow those students that have those types of credentials to move on to post-secondary education with the support of a Pell Grant or a federal student loan. That can make access to post-secondary education and the whole idea of career planning and credentialing impossible. We've talked to students who have not been able to go to career schools to work on programs in the culinary arts or a child care certificate or auto repair simply because of the type of high school diploma that they graduated with and their lack of access to financial support to be able to pursue those credentials. And that's something that could be easily fixed by the federal government. As students and youth with disabilities prepare for their futures, they're counseled to explore a specific career to see if it meets their interests, abilities, and goals. We often hear the term career pathway used to describe this transition across the education continuum, including entrance and exit points to career opportunities over a lifetime. While we are learning about a lot in this space, a lot more for us to learn. Judy, what does career pathway mean in federal legislation? And what advantages does a career pathways approach provide individuals with disabilities? Well, career pathway became a codified term in federal legislation with the passage of the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. And there is a seven-part definition for a career pathway program. Essentially, it is that there is a combination of high-quality education, training, and other services, that there are systems coming together, intentionally aligning the education, the occupational training, the supportive services to help an individual be successful in completing a credential and a credential with labor market value. This idea that the program and the result of the program, the industry-recognized credential, the academic credential, aligns with regional skill needs, that the program pays attention to both secondary and post-secondary credential attainment. It includes high school diploma 
or high school equivalency for those without, and that it uses really innovative instructional strategies. It uses contextualized foundational skill building. It doesn't ask individuals with English language deficiencies or foundational skill needs to do sequential sort of a long sequences of academic skill building before getting into occupational training. It organizes that training for acceleration through contextualization. It includes these support services. It offers an opportunity to both enter an occupation or to advance in that occupation. So it's a very rigorous program definition. It is in WIOA. It is also, here's another acronym, in the HEA, in the Higher Education Act, as part of financial aid structure. So it's a definition that is gaining traction, and it really came about because of the work across states like Virginia that have been experimenting and innovating in the career pathway space for a while. For individuals with disabilities, career pathway seeks to be really the curb cut of education, an on-ramp to education and employment for individuals with barriers. But, you know, a curb cut is when you think about a sidewalk and there's a curb cut and they were put in there because of the Americans with Disabilities Act, but who uses them? I mean, they're used by bicyclists and people with strollers and I walk up them all the time. So once you create a curb cut, you create an access and an efficiency in service. It really is a benefit to all people. And I'd like to expand on that a little bit, if I might. The concept of taking some of the accommodations that are out there and turning them into opportunities for other people becomes important. We're working with the Virginia Manufacturers Association here as a partner in trying to get people with disabilities included into the advanced manufacturing sector in Virginia. And one of the things that they talk about in that particular business model is lean manufacturing. When you break down lean manufacturing, it's about looking at motion and other things that you can eliminate to make the process more efficient. And when we started talking to those folks about universal design and accommodations, they came to the conclusion that what we were talking about is the same thing they've been telling their manufacturing people they need to think about. So we're trying to help make it clearer to some of the manufacturers that if we're coming in and we're asking for some of these universal design applications or accommodations, we may be in a position to help them make their processes more efficient we need to begin to think a little differently in this space about how we can take things that we've done that make life simpler for people with disabilities that may make other processes more efficient as we look at industries. I couldn't agree more. I'm sitting here. I wish I could look through the phone to see I'm shaking my head, nodding my head, and certainly agreeing with all the points that were acknowledged. And you kind of certainly touched on this a little bit, and others may want to chime in as well. But my question, again, is what is the importance of industry-recognized credentials to career pathways for individuals with disabilities. Any other thoughts on that? I would say that to me, and I like the phrase that Judy just used, a labor market value on these credentials. It's basically identifying credentials that the industry values so that if we can help people with disabilities think through, attain these types of industry-recognized credentials, I call it looking for an edge. If you're trying to help people with disabilities be in the front of the line in hiring, if you talk to your men, to the businesses, they identify what it is they're looking for in terms of an industry-recognized credential. That is the credential they value. If you can put the supports in place to help people with disabilities attain that credential, if you can then put that together with the soft skills are those skills that I would call job-keeping skills in place, 
then you might be able to move people to the beginning of the line in terms of getting their foot in the door for interviews. And we find that to be the value of those industry-recognized credentials. They become a part of that process of making sure you're at the beginning of the line. So, Joe, I totally agree that we need to be focused on helping youth, especially all youth and youth with disabilities, understand what the labor market opportunities are. But the other opportunity that comes in when we start thinking about these credentials is that the skill sets that they're learning, and this has been already talked about, are competencies, and these competencies are transferable across a wide range of careers. And so while at the same time we're trying to help youth understand, look at the opportunities in front of you and look at the ways in which you can move into those, I also want to focus on building their capacity to expand their sense of opportunity beyond what's in front of them and to really understand that they belong in the world of work. There are so many opportunities they have here. And that as they build a sense of competence, that they have these skill sets that they've learned through these great opportunities, they can apply them across a wide range of areas. And I say that because if we're going to focus just on the industries that are in front of them, these industries close down and adaptability and resiliency, proactivity, all these things are now really important so that we're really building a success identity among our youth with disabilities that they can apply across a number of areas. So I wasn't sure, Joe, if you wanted to comment on that, but I was just trying to expand it a little bit from just the, we get into the feeling that we're here to support only the industry in front of us, but what we're building are stronger communities when we have competent youth that are ready to really take on the world. I would agree with that, Scott, because I think you could look at it as a part of the career path where you have opportunities to go up inside of the industry sector, but at the same time, it branches out in different locations. So you might start in logistics, end up in advanced manufacturing, and then move on up into engineering as you go up in the skill set. Exactly. But mm-hmm. you can move over to the transferability of the competencies, I think, is huge. But getting that first step, even if it's something like a career readiness certificate, where all of a sudden they've achieved something academic where they've never been successful before, the confidence that it builds, and as you build these competencies, you also gain confidence. And I think that gives people, particularly some of the kids with disabilities we've seen, the idea that they can go on and do other things other than just what they started, and they keep moving and looking up. And I think that's an excellent point you made. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly it. Helping build the individual's capacity to really see themselves as successful down the road. Yes, indeed. I can't say enough that it certainly does boost the self-esteem and opens the doors for them for many other opportunities. So what types of jobs are we talking about? And what is the importance of high-demand jobs? Judy? Well, really, for an education program to be a career pathway program, it must result in skills and credentials that have regional labor market value. In other words, employers are looking for workers with these skills and credentials, and individuals who have them can be employed in quality career-enhancing employment, not a dead-end job. So these jobs are identified regionally and locally with direct input from industry sector partners, from employers, who are truly partners in the career pathway system, who are committed to being part of the learning and earning part of the pathway. And that pathway concept is really critical. The education has to have value, too. It has to not be training for one specific job. It needs to have those transferable skills that Scott was talking about. If a region has high demand for registered nurses, however, that's a high demand, occupation in demand, as they call it in WIOA, 
we know that there are constituents of the workforce development system who are individuals with barriers to education and employment success. So we can't start the career pathway there at that high demand job. We really need to build toward those credentials and not start with just that level of training. There's some really good energy in this space in these sub-baccalaureate awards and credentials. Georgetown Center for Education and Workforce Development just came out with a report that analyzes the sectors that have these types of good jobs, good middle skill jobs without the four-year degree in many sectors, manufacturing, transportation, utilities, business services, construction, leisure and hospitality, healthcare, government services. But again, though, the credentials earned, the jobs placements need to be in that pathway structure so that individuals can continue to gain the academic skills, to gain the credentials that will lead toward that higher employment. In Virginia, the governor started a program called Credentials That Count, and he wanted 50,000 credentials in that sub-baccalaureate space. Some people call them middle skill jobs. And that's been a good stepping stone. And we made sure that people with disabilities were included in this process of getting people to these levels of credentialing, identifying the supports that are there. This process is all about high demand occupations. And one of the things that that does is it gets some of the businesses are more willing to look at candidates they may not have considered before, being are willing to help think about how people can access their services with supports that may not have been something they would have considered before. So it does also offer opportunity for new programming to come in to help them fill the supply of individuals who are competent and have the skill set they're looking for, as long as you can help people get there. So glad you mentioned about the business engagement, and that is really critical in moving this model forward. So certainly uh, more information on that and knowing what other states are doing, in addition certainly to Virginia, but others as well will be really beneficial to us learning a lot more. Senator, did you have anything you want to add with regards to business engagement in your state? Business engagement is incredibly important. We have, especially in the area of intellectual and developmental disabilities, which is the group of people with disabilities that I've worked with the most, we have a pretty strong advertising campaign across the state encouraging employers about the benefits, the skills that will be offered to their businesses by people with disabilities. And we've gotten a great response, especially when we're providing great support to the individuals who are working and the businesses. Businesses learn that these individuals are assets to their companies and they start promoting the benefits of hiring people with disabilities to others in the business community. And we've seen that time and again here. Absolutely. Anyone else like to chime in on that? I would say business engagement is sort of the key in the career pathway model. We, on the services side, need to take time to listen to what business is looking for, what their work environments are, the credentials they want, and be sure that what we're putting on the table for the clients with whom we are working is strategies that will get them to meet these requirements that the businesses have. And I firmly believe people can skill up to these particular requirements, and it's a good way to get somebody started. But all you're really doing is paying attention to what business says they need And then you become a partner with them, not just a service provider. And I think that partnership concept is where we need to go. I think that's what the senator was mentioning when when they were really working with their businesses. They were truly creating a partnership that helps the business meet their bottom line and individuals with disabilities get opportunity. And along those same lines, many states have adopted policies requiring middle and high school students to develop and maintain an individualized learning plan, also known as an ILP, 
in order to make their education more individualized and improve their student outcomes. Dr. Solberg, your expertise is in career development, especially this initiative referred to as individualized learning plans. Can you tell us a little about the nature of ILPs and how they relate to working with youth with disabilities? Sure, yes, and thank you for the opportunity. So the work that we've been doing in studying this is actually coming out of the National Collaborative on Workforce and Disability for Youth, which is a technical assistance center from the Department of Labor's Office of Disability Employment Policy, really focusing on how do we help all youth make this transition into adulthood, and then what do we need to help organizations really understand about youth with disabilities. And what happened was is we had a number of states that were going forward with these individualized learning plans, and the conversation began with, in terms of my getting involved, is what are they, and are youth with disabilities being included, and are we seeing some outcomes that are positive and significant that we should be thinking about scaling? So what it does and how it connects to the conversation we're having is if you think of the career pathway from the career and technical education field as setting up, it's already been really well documented in the conversation today, that we're creating this pathway that has an academic component of skill development, work-based learning, which is what we call the employer engagement, early access to college, as well as getting into some kind of certification pathway, that that is a really important thing to set up, and there's a lot of systems that have to be involved in that from higher education to the employer community as well as the academics in terms of the high schools. Where the ILP comes in is it's sort of focusing on what we call, and this is in the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, they call it a personalized career pathway. And the personalized career pathway is where we're focused on helping the individual and their family really understand this process understand that this individual that's sitting before us, this student with disabilities, has tremendous potential. What we have to do is figure out what that potential is. And we call that, in the ILP realm, we call that self-exploration skills. Do you understand your abilities, your aptitudes? And then the career exploration skills is the second phase, which is where can you apply all those? And this is where the career pathways become really critical. What are the different areas, different two-year degree options that may lead to a credential? What are the four-year degree options that lead to other opportunities? And how can you see yourself now moving and having possibility in some of these areas? And then the third area is what we call career planning and management. And so this individualized learning plan is designed to help the individual figure out who they are, all the different opportunities to expand their sense of self of where they can go. And then career planning and management picks it up with, well, how do we get there, right? What are the employability skills you might need, the life skills you might need, the resiliency, social-emotional learning, job search skills, financial literacy, all kinds of things that go into that. And so if you think about it in the context of this conversation, we can design and set up systems that are great. But until our youth and families understand the relevance and meaningfulness of those systems, they're really not going to fully engage. And what the ILP process is, what we've been finding, is that these youth are now realizing, oh, I'm taking math because I need it in order to go somewhere that I now have defined is a place I want to go. We're finding youth with disabilities are now choosing a regular diploma option as opposed to the alternative, which you heard about before, because they realize they need that regular diploma in order to achieve their career and life goals. And so it's really turning the story around where, yes, we've got great adults that are working on building systems, but we haven't focused enough attention 
on helping youth and families really become the energy, the generator, to really put themselves in those systems in a way that's meaningful. And this kind of comes back to what Joe and I were talking about before. When we start focusing on transferable skills, what that means is I'm not as interested in what the particular pathway is that a high school may have created, because each high school may create two pathways, maybe three. They're not creating the whole 72 pathways that are available. They're creating a few. But if we can help our youth realize that by entering into this pathway, I'm building transferable competencies that are now going to enable me to move in other directions, they're going to fully engage in those opportunities. And that's what we're kind of looking for from the career development. How do we establish career development as a strategy for engaging youth in positive youth development so they're building stronger character, stronger resiliency, stronger adaptability as they move through their life space? So that's from the professor up in the tower view, but that's based on (laughs) a lot of research we've done on the ground, talking with parents and talking with teachers and students about their experiences in ILPs. Well, the professor up in the tower view is certainly on point, at least from my perspective. I'm sitting here, again, shaking my head like, yes, you're right on point. <laughs> and certainly as a legislator, I look to innovative ideas and just trying to find out what we can do to replicate, you know, even in my state of Maryland, but many other states. So are you familiar with what other states are implementing the ILP strategies? Yeah, so that's been a really exciting thing is we've got – the majority of states now that are involved in some form of either mandate or they're strongly encouraging their school counselors in the high school, now it's middle school, and increasingly K through 12 systems to engage in this ILP process. It's been very exciting. We have a lot of statewide implementation policies that are now in place. Some of the big states we're seeing right now, Arizona, Colorado, Massachusetts, Wisconsin is really big on this. Kentucky's been out in front for a while. They're all kind of learning from each other. We have a state leaders network that talks about all of this. And as a result, you're seeing schools that are bouncing from being the lowest performing schools in their state to now becoming higher performing and usually in the top 25% when it comes to graduation rates and college entry rates. We still need to focus on college completion rates. That's another conversation for another day. But you're seeing that youth are engaged, they're moving forward. And as states are gathering and getting involved in this, It's been very exciting. And I will say that on the career technical education world, as we talk about the career pathways, they're also getting it. I'm working with a lot of state leaders from the national organizations as well as in the states. They're realizing that career development is really the piece that ties all of this together. That If we think about it as an individual who's growing and developing and helping them start taking charge and start to directing their own development, we have a much stronger asset in that classroom. We have a much more engaged individual in the employer setting. Employers perceive them differently because they see this individual who's ready to take on the world. It's amazing to watch. And so, yes, across the country, we're seeing some exciting pieces. And even at the federal level, working with our group from ODEP has helped to put together a nice report with a couple of major organizations that are focused on state policies that are really wanting this ILP process to drive the transition plan within the IEP. Kentucky has some of the strongest language that says, if you're going to put something in that transition plan, it better first show up in that individualized learning plan, meaning that we're working with this kid weekly, monthly. We're providing them support and access so they can define the goals they want to do, where they want to go, and how they want to get there. When it's time to come up with that transition plan, we want you to take what's there 
and now figure out what accommodations are needed to help them successfully implement that plan. So it's a very exciting shift in how we're approaching use during the IEP process as well. That's, that's good to know, um, simply because I want to transition into some lingo that I've heard, you know, here recently. But we hear a lot about college and career readiness. What does it mean to be career ready? Scott, your thoughts on that? Career ready is really interesting. When the College and Career Readiness Initiative started, it was really focused on how well you're passing your standardized test scores, right? Whether they're in school or the national ones, the Accuplacer, for example. Are you passing those, meaning that you have the skill sets to enter a four-year degree? And immediately, once that came out, people started to say, whoa, there's a bunch of middle-skilled careers. There's a bunch of middle-class income occupations that are not at that four-year degree level and are in high demand. And how do we start helping everyone realize it's not about getting a four-year degree. It's about figuring out what life goals you want to have, what are your career and life goals, and then which academic post-secondary pathway is most specific to helping you realize those goals. So what happened then was the first initial phase was to say, okay, something's not right with just focusing on the four-year college. And then a whole group came in and said, well, career readiness is a little bit different than college readiness. There's a whole domain here. And in that domain, what we found in our research is that individuals who we would call career ready are able to tell you a lot about what they're interested in. They can give you a set of goals, not just one. A lot of times they have two to three, and we know from human development research that maintaining three goals through life is very predictive of a good quality health, living longer, quality of life at the older ages. It's having goals, having something about that is very important because it gets you focused on development. And so we know that when a career-ready individual, we see them and they're talking, they've got two or three ideas of where they want to go. They can tell you the nature of those career areas. They can explain it. They can say, well, some of the key features are this or that. And they can also tell you what they're doing right now, what they did in the last year, and what they plan to do next year as they continue to develop. So they're volunteering, they're getting work-based learning, they're studying, they're learning about, they're continually to articulate where they fit. Those individuals we have found are more confident, they're motivated, they find school relevant, they find post-secondary meaningful to their life course. They're managing their stress and health differently, so they're actually actively directing their learning, but they're actively building a sense of success by making sure they're getting to bed on time, eating differently, managing relationships. It's pretty amazing to see what happens when we talk about a career-ready individual, that this is a spark. This is a way of building a sense of a success identity that we've not seen before in education. And we've done this research on our students with disabilities. We've interviewed them. We've done it with the whole population, then went right in to see what does it look like on the disability end. And that's exactly what it looks like. It's very exciting to see youth with disabilities seeing themselves as capable, able, with a plan, and an execution strategy that they're already in the process of implementing. The parents, when they hear that for the first time, some of them, they're just shocked. They can't believe that the school has helped produce a child who's ready to be successful. In exit interviews, our employers are looking at these kids and they're feeling, this is exactly what we've wanted education to do all along, and now you're doing it. So they no longer talk about test scores. We've seen companies that when they see that they're focusing on career readiness, they're putting in the high-tech manufacturing in the school in order to put the project-based learning and the basic skill set that they want to see on the ground when they're hiring them. They're putting those in the schools to help them along. So it's a real exciting energy that comes 
when we focus on this concept of career ready and when we help others really get a chance to see it in action. It's very powerful. And I'd like to build on that, to take it towards these middle-skilled jobs with our, our Career Pathways for Individuals with Disabilities project is looking at advanced manufacturing as one of our areas. And we have the Virginia Manufacturers Association with us every step of the way in making sure that what we're doing with this process is giving kids opportunities at the end of the day. They had a problem getting kids, just anybody interested in taking advanced manufacturing jobs. So they created something called Dream It, Do It. And in Virginia, of course, we call it Dream It, Do It Virginia. And these are typically one week long processes where people learn about what manufacturing in today's world is and the various principles that go along with it. And it goes to getting these folks interested in choosing manufacturing as a potential career as well as bringing parents along with them on that journey because many times it's parents saying, no, you want to go on to college or you want to go on to something else. Don't think about manufacturing. We've ensured people with disabilities get access to that, and we've created a couple of these kinds of camps specifically targeted to kids with disabilities. And what it also does is show manufacturers when they come and watch these kids do these processes like powered water filtration or a computerized numerical control system, and they're doing it at a level that's just good as or better than a lot of other students can do, all of a sudden they begin to see the opportunity. We do, as a result of us working closely with them, we have the CEO of the Virginia Manufacturers Association talking to his membership about being sure they include people with disabilities in their talent pipeline as they're creating new opportunities within their plants. What we also see from the students when they get into this is they just think of all these things they can do, and it's hands-on learning for them, and that's a huge piece with a lot of our students. And once they put their hands on things that are within an interest area and you've created the competencies through some training and then hands-on learning, it's all of a sudden different things go off about opportunities for them and we take them to a lot of different plants so they can see other things out there than just what we're training them on. And it really does create people who want to do more, who want to continue on in this learning process and who look at their futures and it makes a big difference in their life outcomes, I think. A lot of these kids are getting good jobs with benefits and that's really what we're trying to get to. Well, Joe, what some, one of the things you hit on too that is so huge is that we're helping employers understand the capacity and the capability of our youth with disabilities. And that is such a key component to opening up other opportunities for work-based learning. So it's a very exciting program what you're describing. And that's exactly the theme that we need to be working on through this process. It's really good to hear about the exposure and the opportunities that they're having so they can showcase their skills and showcase the confidence that they've had through these different types of programs. According to the Department of Education, there are a number of opportunities and programs available for students preparing to exit secondary school. Whether the student's next step is employment or entering a post-secondary training or an educational program, it's important for students with disabilities to obtain as much work experience as possible to prepare for adult life. Senator Dessler. As a state legislator and with your work on both the Education and Workforce Development Committees, what has Oregon implemented to improve access to post-secondary education and career programs for those with disabilities? Thank you for the question. We've been working on this for a number of years. The first thing that we did back in 2007, we became the first state in the nation to create a system of statewide standards for modified and extended diplomas for students with disabilities. This ensured that students were taking the courses that aligned 
with a regular diploma and allowed students to continue receiving education through the age of 21 to get a regular diploma even if they had previously obtained a GED or a modified diploma or an extended diploma. The standards for the Oregon modified diploma are so rigorous that the federal government has now accepted that as a regular diploma. So those students are able to get regular financial aid, apply to the military, and apply to, to college. So that's been a great benefit for those students and has been used pretty tremendously. The other thing that we did was change our state law to allow state school funds or the, the funds that are used in public education programs to support students with disabilities in that transition time from age 18 to 21 where they can continue receiving services from the school district to actually receive those services in a community college or a university by taking credit-bearing classes or in a career school. So you can have a student that maybe was not able to complete a standard diploma, but we can move them directly into a career pathway program and have that be funded with supports provided by the school system, including an educational assistant or an IEP that is followed. So that's been pretty important. The other thing that we did more recently, we have committed to cost-free community college for students in Oregon. That has required that students have at least a 2.5 grade point average when they graduate from high school. We recognize that that might shut the door on many students with disabilities who were pursuing a regular diploma as opposed to a modified diploma. So we added alongside our Oregon Promise or Free Community College program something that's called our Postgraduate Scholar Program. And that will allow these students to also access community college. The funding mechanism will come through the school district. And then finally, we have really worked in Oregon to look at our entire K-12 system to look at better supporting students with disabilities across disabilities. So whether it's a physical disability, an intellectual disability, a sensory disability, a student who may not be neurotypical, to really build soft skills within those students from the time they're in early intervention. What are we doing in terms of teaching children's chores and classroom skills? How are we ensuring that students with disabilities and in special education programs are accessing the same type of internship and career shadow programs that other kids are? Those have been neglected frequently in the past. We've also made sure that our students with disabilities are engaging in dual enrollment programs in their high schools where they're taking a high school class that's also giving them a college credit. And we've been working to make sure that students with disabilities as often as possible are enrolling in regular classrooms instead of in self-contained classrooms so that for as many subjects as possible, these students are accessing the same curriculum as everyone else. You can't move on to post-secondary education if you've been denied a basic education in K-12. And unfortunately, that's the reality for far too many students with disabilities. They come into kindergarten at age five or early intervention as toddlers, and expectations are set so low. In Oregon, we have tried to start with a presumption of competence, knowing that if we raise the bar for students with disabilities, they're going to reach it every time. Thank you for the acknowledgement of looking at the students holistically, because as you were stating, that often is kind of one-sided or it leaves out some things that they are really certainly in need of for the skill building. So I guess my question for you, and you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but are you able to identify for us any additional examples of promising policies to ensure appropriate education and skill building of people with disabilities so they can provide and be able to have family-sustaining wages? Yes, and in Oregon, this is actually beyond the education program. When you're looking at students and you want to prepare students so that schools have them as ready as they can be to go out into the world, 
but when students are reaching vocational rehabilitation programs or employment programs that may be funded by Medicaid, we need to be looking at research-based programs that we know build skills. We know with certainty that sheltered workshops do not build skills. Sheltered workshops are dead ends where students and adults and workers are stuck doing work that is not suited to them, that does not feed their passion, and that does not lead to wages that will be improved. So in Oregon, our sheltered workshops are closing within the next two years. We will no longer be serving individuals in sheltered workshops. And in fact, starting two years ago, students that were leaving high school could not go to a sheltered workshop. They could only go to community-based employment where they were employed in a job that made at or above minimum wage. The other thing that we are looking at in Oregon, and I really think we need to look at as a federal policy, is eliminating the sub-minimum wage. It makes no sense to continue this policy of 14C certificates that start with the assumption that people with disabilities are less functional or less productive than people without disabilities. The way this works is you put someone out there, you test them to see how much they produce in the course of an hour, you compare that to a non-disabled person working at the height of their productivity after they've been on the year for two jobs. That's an unfair assessment to start with, and it doesn't look at assistive technology, at matching people to jobs that actually work. So I'm proud that in Oregon we are moving forward faster than the federal government is requiring us by making sure that all young people with disabilities, including individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities, are moving into the workforce by looking for jobs that fit their skills, that we are matching them with programs that help them develop real skills, sorting screws is not a real skill if that's not what your interest is, and that we are really working on policies that eliminate what is really an offensive practice of sub-minimum wage. A minimum wage is a minimum wage, and if we say that Americans or Oregonians are deserving of meeting a minimum wage, people with disabilities are Oregonians and Americans, and they deserve the same protections. And if you're not making at least minimum wage, there's no way you're going to have a family-sustaining job. So we have to address that. And then finally, at the federal level, we've talked a lot about the ABLE savings accounts as parents saving money for children. But for workers with disabilities that need to go through benefits counseling and looking at how they can manage assets and still receive some of the support services that they may need to receive or medical services that they need to receive, these ABLE savings programs really allow individuals to save money for their financial goals, whether that's a first and last month rent for education to further their professional skills without having to put at risk their social services. That is incredibly important and I think holds a great deal of promise in terms of allowing people with disabilities to be more financially independent. Dr. Ashley, you want to comment or anything about family sustaining wages? Yes, I think a couple important points were just brought up. I want to go back to an earlier statement the Senator made about expectations, where she said that if you raise the bar for people with disabilities, they will meet that raised bar. And I think that expectation issue is important for many people in this business because I think of it as the tyranny of low expectations, because if you have higher expectations and then you support people to attain that, I agree that they will often rise to that level of expectation, and that means higher skill sets, more competency, more confidence, and I think that's critical in how we think about the programming that's in front of us. I also believe it's important to look at work incentive counseling that addresses some of the benefits for those clients that are on SSI or SSDI, the Social Security Disability Programs, because if you're going to have people make the choice to go to work, they need to understand what all the ramifications are. And I also believe in the financial literacy, because if you teach people to manage assets and to 
address finances pretty soon they're going to believe they need to have some finances to manage. So those kinds of pieces go together in looking at these middle skill jobs. These are forty to sixty thousand dollar a year jobs is a strategy for many people who are not thinking college or even community college is where they want to go. Sometimes they're going to get into these middle skill jobs and realize there's other opportunity for them down the road, but it's a stepping stone for them. So I think that's a good starting place to get to the kind of wages. And we all need to be looking at things that where people can support their families. And I just believe in looking at these middle skills as a good opportunity for a lot of people that we weren't thinking of before. And the credential attainment, those industry-recognized credentials, is that starting point for a lot of what we're doing here in Virginia in this particular project. The Department of Labor, in coordination with the United States Departments of Education and Health and Human Services, has worked for the implementation of the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, also known as WIOA. It is the first legislative reform in 15 years of the public workforce system and is designed to help get Americans, including those with disabilities, employment, access to high-quality jobs and help employers high-skilled workers. Judy, how does the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act support individuals with disabilities? Well, one of the reasons I think people are hearing about WIOA, as well as the fact that it was recently passed, is that it requires state and regional and local planning. It really requires partners across the workforce development, education, human service systems to get together and make strategic plans to support their communities, individuals in their communities, including individuals with disabilities, and to support their regional economies, to support the employers and the industries important in their region. So Title IV of WIOA is Vocational Rehabilitation Services. It focuses specifically on individuals with disabilities. It calls for integrated competitive employment opportunities. Again, not the sheltered workshop employment that the Senator referenced. It calls for career pathways. It calls for supporting those secondary students who have individualized education plans, those IEPs, as they transition to post-secondary, and as Scott indicated, coordinating with individual learning plans. Title IV has great models for integrated resource teams, of intentional alignment of services, recognizing that people don't exist within our federal programs. People's lives are complex, and they may be receiving support and services in many different places, and we need to figure out how to align and integrate those services to best efficiency for that individual. But as well as the Title IV, the Vocational Rehabilitation Services, individuals with disabilities are served throughout the WIOA system. So there are in Title I of WIOA, there is an adult program with a specific call to provide priority of service to low-income individuals, to public benefit recipients, to individuals with basic skill deficiencies. There's also a Title I youth program where 75% of the funds now need to be targeted on out-of-school youth, which is the youth up to age 24 who have been disconnected from education. Again, with this idea of bringing back the career pathway model for bringing those individuals back onto a career pathway. And there's also a Title I dislocated worker program, which many people know is for individuals who lost their employment through no fault of their own through labor market shifts. There's also a Title II in WIOA, which is the Adult Education and Family Literacy Act, foundational skill needs. This helps people build those skills 
to be successful at work, in the home, in their community. There are many individuals with documented and undocumented disabilities in that program. And then there's a Title III program, which is sort of the universal customer open access to America's job centers. So comprehensively, individuals with barriers and individuals with disabilities are the primary focus of this law. And it really is a place for career pathway conversations to happen because those local workforce boards are mandated to convene their education partners to develop and implement career pathways. So it's a great convening table for these conversations. Thank you, Judy. Would anyone else like to weigh in on the subject? Yeah, this is Scott. It's really exciting to see what the WIOA legislation has done around youth for youth with disabilities. One of the key shifts is focusing away from job placement or getting people into jobs and really focusing now on career development. You'll see the word career development throughout this stuff. We'll hear career pathways. We hear career counseling. So instead of hearing placement and jobs, you're hearing career all the way echoed throughout. So it's really focusing on a capacity building strategy, which is really exciting. And also it's demanding that the states in the rehab area spend 15% of their funding to focus on these high-need youth populations that were just described. The National Collaborative on Workforce and Disability for Youth is working with many of these states to help build their capacity to make this shift because many of the states have not focused so much on youth prior to them becoming adults. And so you're getting, as you see, this whole mosaic of support systems that are starting to gather around youth with disabilities to really help them build capacity. And part of it is about building these pathway systems, but part of it is also helping youth and families start to really direct this process and providing new outcomes for success that are things like getting your high school degree, getting your post-secondary degree as part of the outcomes, which before was never part of the story. So it's a very exciting time. And what WIOA has done is just a great opportunity for improving the lives of our youth with disabilities. To wrap up, how do you see the importance of career planning and educational coaching to promote economic independence for people with disabilities? So I think it is absolutely critical. What you are looking at is planting that seed of expectation in the mind of a young person that is looking forward to the life that they want to build. And you are looking at the same time at planting that seed of expectation in our communities to fully embrace and welcome the diversity of our workforce and to recognize the skill and benefits that people with disabilities will bring into our workforce. If we are starting early on with young people with disabilities and surrounding them with messages of not only you can do it and you will do it, but you should do it because that is your responsibility as a citizen of your state and a citizen of your country and a contributor to your community, we are going to see more people succeed. That is the primary thing that we have to change. The details of how we get people to access post-secondary education, what career pathway they follow, what credential they have, all of those are details. What we have to get right is that basic foundation that we have high expectations and fully respect these young people with disabilities and older folks that are in the workforce really trying to get into the workforce. It is hard to break through. And while we work on changing that system at the front end, we really can't forget about our older workers who are just a well of untapped economic potential for our communities and for our workforce and can provide great improvements to the independence of those individuals as well. 
Thank you for acknowledging the older workers because sometimes they're often left out and making sure they're a part of the bigger picture and ensuring that they are economically independent as well is critical. Any uh, closing statements anyone else would like to make? I echo what the senator said about making sure you know people have all the understanding of their options, are coached and supported to create those goals, to see that vision. I also think there's a lot of responsibility on our systems, our education, our workforce development systems to intentionally align, to take down the barriers that stop individuals from achieving those goals, whether those are financial or just systemic barriers that don't allow that forward progress academically to earn those industry-valued credentials. And I would add to that that as we build these systems, we've got to remember to bring the service providers, the vocational rehabilitation counselor, the case manager in the workforce system, and the other folks along with us on this career pathways, this career development focused approach, and be sure that we have the training available to support them in understanding how that particular approach can increase the outcomes and the opportunities for the clients with whom we are working so that they're all coming with us. We've In our Career Pathways project, we've literally taken some of these folks with us to these advanced manufacturing sites and let the manufacturers describe what they're looking for so that they can truly understand what the job is and what the opportunities are and ask questions about it so that they can also address these with their clients. Because if they're not recommending career pathways that meet the skills and abilities, then the students aren't going to understand what their options are. I think that's got to be built into how we think about creating this system that cuts across all of the workforce program, whether it's VR or Title I, Title II. We just need to be sure we're all moving in a similar direction. And that's one of the reasons I really like the integrated resource teams as you're thinking about a person who might have some different options and having people come together to say, here's some different choices, here's some different supports that might make a more challenging option doable for a client or a way that they can attain a good outcome. Hi, this is Scott. Just a couple of other points that just resonate with what's already been said. One is we cannot ever underestimate the power of that caring and encouraging adult. And as you were just saying, bringing the rehab counselors along, helping them see the power they can have and being encouraging and what that looks like. But it's also our educators. It's our employers. It's our families. That that is a really critical piece to this whole thing. And the second is that We're no longer talking about career decision-making. We're not saying, how do we help the person make a right decision? We're talking about career planning. We're talking about helping the individual see themselves as potential, as possible, and helping them begin to expand their sense of possibility through this whole process. And what's happening in these career pathways is exactly that, that they're seeing themselves as capable, as confident individuals. And when they're standing from that position of confidence, They look out in the world and they see a whole range of opportunities. And so very excited about this new world that we're in right now, supporting our youth with disabilities. And I agree with what Joe says. We've got to bring everyone along to help them all see this vision and what this possibility is. And it does mean professional development. We need to think about what the skill sets are for these encouraging and caring adults. What do they need to help them be able to really serve our youth with disabilities in the most effective way possible? I'd like to thank all of our guests for joining us on the latest Women in Government podcast. I'd also like to say thank you to all of the listeners who are taking the time to hear this important discussion. Be on the lookout for our next episode, which will address effective hiring practices and job training for people with disabilities. Until next time, I'm Maryland Delegate Cherie Sample-Hughes.
You've been listening to the Women in Government podcast, a resource made available for those interested in discussing important issues and policies of the day. For more information, please visit our website at womeningovernment.org.